Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to a new episode of your favorite podcast, New Books in Islamic Studies, which operates online through the New Books Network. I'm your host, Sher Ali Tareen. For each new episode, we choose an important new book in the broader field of Islamic studies and we chat with its author. In her formidable and fiercely well-argued new book, Merchants of Virtue, Hindus, Muslims and Untouchables in 18th century South Asia, Divya Cherian shows with meticulous detail and in lyrical prose the processes and practices that contributed to the emergence and hardening of an exclusivist Hindu identity set in opposition to a notion of untouchability that also subsumed Muslims. Set in 18th century Marwar in the Rathore Kingdom, this book sketches an intimate portrait of the micro-politics and the everyday life of the aspirations, fissures and resistances that went into the stipulation of caste distinctions in early modern South Asia. At the heart of this book is a narrative, equally fascinating and frictious, of how a state-driven campaign to cultivate virtuous Hindu merchants or Mahajans contributed to the demarcation of epistemological, legal, and spatial boundaries between upper-caste Hindus and untouchables, including Muslims. Merchants of Virtue combines the best forms of social, legal, political, and conceptual history, and its invasive examination of the interface between religion, state, and society will be of much interest to scholars of religion, South Asia, and Islam. Available also as an Indian edition, this book will also make for an excellent text to teach in both undergraduate and graduate seminars. Here now is my conversation with Professor Divya Cherian. Uh, hello, Divya. Welcome to the New Books Network and to New Books in Islamic Studies. Uh, I trust you've been on the New Books Network before, but uh, I'm really, really uh, thrilled to be talking to you and uh, for this podcast to reach audiences in the study of Islam and religion, especially, and of course, uh, South Asian studies as well. Um, and I, as we were talking uh, before I you know, pressed the record button, that uh, this was such an exciting and layered reading, uh, which really brings together questions of history, religion, uh, how one thinks about identity and law. Um, and it's really uh, incredibly interesting to look at an 18th century perspective on matters which are, of course, of tremendous contemporary relevance and significance as well. So I thought maybe one place for us to begin, uh, and especially for you know this audience uh, of Islamic studies scholars, uh, some sort of legwork might be needed in terms of the key categories, the, the, the site um, of the book. So I thought maybe we could begin by talking about the title of the book, which I think is a very appropriate title, Merchants of Virtue. And the book primarily makes uh, 
a major intervention and argument about the question of untouchability and how untouchability, when positioned in opposition to a Hindu identity, uh, basically made way for a certain uh, more reified and more uh, coherent notion of a Hindu identity. But untouchability is a concept which subsumed both lower caste Hindus as well as Muslims, uh, which is why I think this is a very critical text for scholars of Islam to also engage. But let me begin by asking you if you could just set things up a bit by describing briefly what is the central argument that you make in this book regarding untouchability in early modern India and uh, uh, who are these merchants that you talk about and perhaps you could also uh, speak a little bit about uh, the setting of this uh, of this book in uh, Marwar 18th century. Great. Um, thank you so much, uh, Sherali. I'm really excited about this conversation because um, it's uh, it's interesting to me that you uh, want to put it in dialogue with the larger field of um, Islamic studies. So I'm excited about it and I look forward to what your listeners feel about how my book relates to their research and interests. So um, about the your, your questions, uh, I mean, I maybe I can begin with the scene setting. So this book is set in Marwar, which is in... Uh, sort of Western and, and sort of Central Rajasthan today um, uh, in modern day India. And um, it is set in the 18th century where this kingdom is ruled by a dynasty called the Rathors who have been ruling this region for centuries uh, as many powers have come and gone from the regions around them, including the Mughals, whose suzerainty they uh, accepted in the late 16th century. Uh, and when the Mughal control uh, began to decline um, and kind of shrunk to Delhi, effectively speaking, uh, that was the period of the 18th century, as historians of and people familiar with the history of South Asia know. Uh, so it is in this 18th century period where the Mughals do have nominal power over this kingdom, but in practice, this kingdom has a kind of... Um, autonomy that it has not had for a couple of centuries or so, even as that autonomy is a bit restricted by the rise of the Marathas from the Deccan, who make regular um, you know, forays into Rajasthan uh, and usually manage to defeat all the different Rajasthani polities. And these Rajasthani polities have to pay to them war indemnities from time to time. So that is the one sort of looming political power, but it's not constantly there. So it is a time in which this the, the kings of this region have a little bit of leeway or room to uh, kind of experiment with state formation. Um, and there are also other uh, groups in this region that also, as a result of processes in the early modern period that is starting the 15th century with the kind of unprecedented or the thickening integration of different parts of the world into a uh, into a global economy and with the circulation of uh, uh, silver uh, all around the world, but particularly the inflow of silver into South Asia, we find that mercantile communities, particularly from Gujarat in the 17th century and from the 18th century onwards from this region of Marwar come to have a kind of outsized influence on financial markets. So there's this, uh, that population originates from this region of Marwar. And even though many are diasporic, uh, they do retain ties with this region. But many, of course, of these mercantile castes continue to live uh, in Marwar. So this is the broader scene in which this history that I, uh, you know, lay out uh, plays out. And the argument that I make is that 
it is these mercantile communities, uh, men of these mercantile communities who take the lead in uh, remaking what it means to be Hindu. And I don't just mean Hindu as an idea, but I also mean Hindu as a word. Uh, what does what does Hindu mean in these sources uh, is something that I seek to answer. And I argue that in the course of the 18th century, these mercantile communities use their influence uh, on society and economy, but most importantly, their influence on and participation in the state to remake what it means to be Hindu, where Hindu means to have an elite culture identity. And this elite caste identity is defined in opposition to yet another category that takes on a new life in these records. And that category is a chape, which means literally untouchable. And it is a category that is explicitly defined in one really remarkable record to include the Muslims. And this kind of inclusion of Muslims as being among the lowly in the imagination of the legal records um, of this period, this kind of lowly association with Muslims is uh, discernible in other records as well. So that is, uh, I would say, my argument. And as to who are the merchants, they are um, mostly Jain and Vaishnav people who are uh, members of sort of hereditary castes that are associated with trade and finance in the region, even coming in from the medieval period. Uh, these are Oswal Jains. These are various uh, Hindu, what would today be called Hindu Vaishnav castes, uh, Vaishnav being uh, worshippers of uh, Vishnu or the avatars of the of the Hindu god Vishnu, particularly Krishna. Um, and uh, these are groups that we would, uh, you know, whose uh, descendants today would also be recognized as people belonging to the so-called Baniya or trading caste. So these are the merchants I'm talking about. One of the things that I found really uh, interesting, productive and exciting as a reader when I was reading this book is that this book really operates at two levels simultaneously, which I think is a really difficult thing to do. One, the level of state, discourses, mechanisms, uh, implementations of law. But then really at the heart of this book is the question of the everyday. It really shows in very intimate detail how the everyday life and rhythms of these uh, inter-religious encounters, inter-caste encounters might have played out. And really the book is showing the fissures and tensions between the everyday and the political coming from uh, state power. Uh, And I think one of the things that perhaps helped you accomplish this uh, stunning task is the nature of the archives, which I was really, really fascinated by. And I really wanted you to uh, speak about that uh, for our listeners. If you could just briefly introduce the archives uh, uh, that uh, were the main fodder for this book, what are they, what language are they in, and then the relationship between the nature of your archives and the kind of intervention uh, that this book uh, tries to make. Sure, yeah. Uh, So the archives, I've relied heavily on... uh a single record series, which is known as the Jodhpur Sanad Parvana Bahi series. And these are the Bahi form, as I also show in the book, uh, is um, taken from the account keeping and record keeping practices of mercantile uh, communities of merchant groups against a practice that that they were already doing coming into this period and that they continue to do today. So the term Bahi in like, you know, outside of this research is actually associated with mercantile uh, ledgers. so these look they are these are these are long i would say they are about two and a half three feet long and about eight nine inches wide they they're these long folios that are bound together at the top uh and they are kind of when they are stored and they have this sort of 
a, a canvas, a red canvas cover, both on the top and the bottom, and they are sort of folded and tied together with a string for storage. So um, the and the script within them is old Marwadi. I have included uh, in within the book some some images of uh, particular folios that you know depict key um, sort of sources that I drew on. In case anybody's interested, the book, by the way, is open access. It can be downloaded for free anywhere in the world. So um, so that's the language of the sources. Uh, the sources themselves are composed from the 1760s, or at least are available to us from the 1760s onwards, which is um, about 10 years into the reign of the particular king, uh, who is uh, an important part of this story, whose name is Maharaja Vijay Singh. So we have uh, access to these records from about 1760s. They are today in the Rajasthan State Archives, Bikaner, and they are annualized compilations of copies of orders that were sent from the crown to the districts of Marwar, so from the center to kind of the administrative districts. Um, they allow us to look at the micro everyday scale, like you said, um, and they also allow us to reflect on the connections between, on the one hand, district and central administration, uh, but on the other hand, uh, the locality, the everyday. And that is truly, I think, kind of a, they're not scattered, they're not, it's that bridge between um, ordinary subjects, uh, shall we say. I mean, I, you know, I, I love to give the example of this chirimar or bird catcher or uh, lots of leather workers, um, you know, uh, very particular niche professions like uh, ivory bangle makers. You know, these are the types of people who show up in these uh, records as petitioners or as people who are the subjects of complaints or people involved in disputes. Uh, and that is, I think, a really special thing. It is not unique in the sense that there are other kingdoms in this Western Indian region in Rajasthan and also in the Peshwa Deccan, where we have this kind of textured record keeping that survives into the present. But that's certainly uh, something that I was that even drew me to this these sources. The other thing they also permit us to look at is extra regional mobility. So people going in and out of Marwar at a ground level, you know, not kings, not princes, not even just these merchants, but just like peasants on the move, uh, even the occasional army marching through, uh, connections. I mean, so that I haven't reflected too much on that, but it's it's really a fascinating thing to think about. So I think my intervention through these sources is really to, um, as also as you also, you know, I think recognize, is to move to the local and to micropolitics. I'm not the first one to do this. As, as I mentioned, you know, there are sources like this from elsewhere in South Asia in the 18th century, pre-colonial. So scholars like Nanda Prasad, Sahai, Sumit Guha, uh, there are you know a number of Japanese scholars of early modern South Asia who published in English from these kinds of sources. But I think what I do, which uh, which is to move back to the subcontinental scale, to the South Asian scale, and also the global scale. So to do both the local, the regional, but to but to refer back to what is going on at these other scales, both in terms of contributing to what's going on in the locality, but also how does our understanding of the locality then change our appreciation uh, of the big picture. And in that sense, I seek to also move away from the idea of the region, you know, the region as this self-contained subunit. Of course, there is such a thing as a region, but I think often the history of early modern South Asia is approached from imperial centers, you know. Uh, and, and I think my goal is to think of this space of South Asia as lots of regions that that you know, none of them has a more privileged um, vantage point than others. So that is what I sought to do in the book. Now, one of the central um, aspects of the narrative that you uh, uh, tell in this book is the kinds of 
transformations um, and shifts that we see in the figure of uh, Maharaja Vijay Singh and more broadly the logics of Rathore kingship in the 18th century. Uh, an increasing emphasis on an explicit Vaishnav uh, devotional piety by the kingdom and then the involvement of uh, this merchant uh, you know, group or the Mahajans uh, in state bureaucracy. So the coming together of these two things, the move towards Vaishnav piety and the increasing involvement of the Mahajans in state bureaucracy is central to the way in which untouchability comes to be seen as the other of, of a Hindu identity and untouchability also subsumes uh, Muslims. So uh, I was wondering if you could speak about the central uh, uh, aspect of the narrative that you tell in the book. About the centrality of the kind of uh, pi- the forms of piety and devotionalism that I'm seeing? Yeah, and the kind of shifts that you see in the Rathore kingship and also uh, the Mahajans' involvement in their state bureaucracy, this whole shift to this intensification of Vaishnav devotional piety, yeah. part of that in your narrative. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, so I think, um, you know, there has been work, for example, uh, by Jack Hawley, Kumkum Chatterjee, um, uh, other ones that immediately come to mind, also uh, Heidi Powell's on uh, how the, you know, kingly world, particularly the Rajput world of of early modern Mughal period South Asia, takes up, uh, you know, bhakti, takes up this new turn in bhakti that starts to emerge in the 15th century, which is these uh, organized sects that are often uh, led by Brahmins uh, and that are centered on the worship of Krishna in a kind of iconic form. So not an iconic, but iconic. Uh, And so there's work on how that it's not merely, if we can put merely in in quotes, uh, a kind of religious orientation, but that it is connected to politics and particularly the articulation of a cosmopolitan trans-regional kingship for Rajputs within this larger domain of the Mughal imperial, so uh, imperium. So where I take this is the 18th century, where the Mughals, uh, all these processes are established, uh, but we see for Marwada rather late embrace of this kind of, you know, explicit uh, association with Bhakti. With It is with Maharaja Vijay Singh that we have a Marwada king take formal initiation into the Vallabh uh, Sampradaya, one of these organized uh, Krishna-centered sects that I'm talking about. So he takes formal initiation. It is recorded. He has paintings made showing himself worshipping Krishna. He sponsors uh, temple construction, as does a very dear concubine of his, who is really almost like a queen for him. She also participates in this by commissioning temples uh, dedicated to Krishna. And there is patronage given to various uh, um, Krishna-centric uh, groups, but particularly the Vallabh Sampradaya that I mentioned. He is part of. Um, all of this is new for Marwa. It's a new kind of devotional kingship. We have had, uh, for example, Norbert Peabody describe this as Hindu kingship uh, as well. Um, And this intervention, however, that he starts to make in kingship also extends to intervention in uh, governing society to kind of remake society uh, in the vision of the ethical prescriptions of the Vaishnavas and the Jains. So here we have another group come in, which is the Jains uh, that I just mentioned, uh, which is uh, evocative or suggestive of where I then take my argument, which is that uh, it is not just the king who is kind of imposing uh, the kinds of interventions that I think we'll talk more about later in our conversation. Um, it's not just he who is intervening in society. It is not a top-down, like the state is not restricted to the person because uh, I see in my records that 
there is a kind of uptake of the kinds of moral and social remakings that the Jodhpur king or the state tries to do within the society itself. And the way in which I can see this happening is by an unpacking of what we mean by this by this thing that we call the state. So the state is not just the king and his nobles, you know, the state actually there is by this point an administrative kind of bureaucracy which consists of uh, scribes, uh, you know, uh, magistrates, uh, district governors, uh, accountants, and all kinds of state offices, which in Marwar are manned heavily by people from mercantile castes, the precise same mercantile castes we discussed earlier, who are Jains or Vaishnav. Um, and we find that uh, this is something that actually has its own history in this larger Rajasthan region, which is this uh, interesting sort of reliance by R- Rajput kings as they built out their states in the early modern period on members of mercantile communities in particular to be their administrators. So they're not just like office holders, they're also fighting wars. It's not how we imagine the stereotypical you know, mercantile caste person to be before modernity. Uh, so they are the state and I find that they are playing an active role in making the decisions, in approving the petitions and in giving direction to the kinds of interventions uh, that, you know, very to give a glimpse of them, things like vegetarianism, uh, enforced vegetarianism, uh, kind of an, uh, this kind of elevation of Vaishnav and Jain ethical norms in the entire kingdom. So those are the, you know, the underlying shifts that lead to uh, the what, what then becomes visible in the archive to us. Towards the end of chapter three, you make an observation that I found very striking and I think will be of great interest to students of Islam as well, where you talk about this paradox that uh, Rathor kingdom, which has deep-rooted Islamicate and Persianate imprints on it, uh, but yet that emerged as a central site for a new Hindu identity, which was set in opposition to precisely uh, Muslims being presented as untouchables. Um, what were some of the key you know, legal, administrative processes and practices uh, through which this hierarchical casting of Muslims as low-caste untouchables was put into motion and, and made possible. How did that uh, pan out? How, how did that, how was that made possible? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, um, thank you. So I think that, you know, when I say, when I talk about an Islamicate or Persianate imprint, it's really very deep because this, um, um, you know, this uh, region is in dialogue with and part of this world, like as the state form develops since the medieval period itself, uh, it develops because and through the presence of Islamicate polities, be it the Delhi Sultanate or its branches. And so all the instruments, so many of the practices, maybe even uh, arguably even the kind of centralization of records, uh, then certain kinds of the you know terminology, the key technical legal vocabulary here, things like araj, you know, these are vernacularizations of Persian or Arabic terms. Araj means uh, arzi. Uh, often the state's order will be um, uvajabi, do what is uvajabi. Uvajabi is coming from vajib, you know, uh, and there is, yeah, and there is no reference to what is vajib, you know, it's just merely do look at the locality, understand the context, the, the center will tell the district, and then do what is uvajabi. Uvajibi huve su kardejo is the Marwadi. And so, um, you know, similarly, there are a number of other, you know, legal terms clearly coming from a lexicon of Islamic law that are being deployed, but with no other uh, explicit drawing upon or our presence of any interpreters of Islamic law. So that is a kind of deep imprint that I'm talking about. 
And that, I argue, is kind of sort of maybe paradoxically, maybe not. That is, after all, how history works, uh, that uh, this same vocabulary and this kind of, you know, the machinery, or if we can call it that, the architecture, the logics that derive deep down from Islamic law or in conversation with Islamic law are, are the site in which this new, uh, more sort of uh, exclusive Hindu identity is imagined. And to answer your questions as to how, I think, again, perhaps due to the nature of the archives, it is, first of all, legal discourse. So that is at a discursive level, the definition of um, the idea of something called the achep. And also to distinguish that, I mean, there is one particular reference that is really very stark with which I open my book, in which the state order defines that something should be done by Hindus, plural, but it should not be done by the achep. And then it goes on to list exactly who it means by achep, which once again literally means untouchable. And in that list of who is untouchable is quite clearly the Turak, which literally translates to the Muslim. And uh, there is another reference in which there is a reference, uh, there is a description of uh, something that should not be permitted to Muslims and other low castes, or Muslim and Muslims and other uh, low castes. And um, so one is at this discursive level, kind of the fusing of the Muslim with the low caste, right? But we also have in these same records uh, uh, descriptions that suggest to us, or petitions or, or representations that suggest that some of this is also going on at the realm of practice. For example, when people are basing their petitions to uh, be segregated from Muslims on a kind of reference to that this is not in keeping with our dignity, it's not in keeping with our dharam or our ethic, you know, these kinds of things. Uh, so people kind of demanding uh, uh, distance from the Muslim and separately also the state itself taking this discursive using into the uh, practice itself by uh, in particular outlawing the killing of animals and uh, applying this to everyone in the kingdom, but particularly singling out exactly members of this untouchable domain, which is Muslims and particular low castes for excessive persecution on the charge of always being uh, susceptible to animal slaughter and of being incapable of not killing animals. So that is where we find that there is discourse and then there is the punitive aspect of state power and law that are being deployed to uh, make this oppos oppositional, um, you know, framing between Hindus and uh, untouchables. I should add here, however, that this is not done and dusted. It is not like what we see in these records is that say this is exactly all that is happening in society. In these legal records themselves, we see examples of resistance, even among actually uh, non those who are who are not in this untouchable group, that is artisanal groups, Rajput groups, even in the mercantile and Brahmin groups whose caste code demands vegetarianism, we find people deviate, people don't follow the rules, they get into trouble, and that's what brings them into this legal archive. So there is resistance, first of all. There is also complexity, just because in the vision of the state and of certain members of society, there is this kind of vision of the Hindu on the one hand and the untouchable on the other, this in practice is is complex. There are lots of overlaps which also make their way into the record. And I've tried my best to show that, for example, in artisanal groups where it is not decided whether the line between Hindu and Muslim is so sharp. Uh, similarly, 
you know, the patronage practices of the state do not, even though it has become, you know, a version of king, in, in patronage, there is still a wide variety of donations that continue to Sufi shrines, to, uh, you know, uh, Islamic practitioners, to other groups such as the Devi worshipping communities, to Shaiva communities. So, you know, there is complexity in the picture, but still I felt that such a clear articulation in law and the extent to which efforts were made to implement it is in itself an important chapter in South Asian history, and we need to recognize it as such. I want to continue this thread because it's so central to the objective of the book, uh, which has to do with these state-driven uh, measures cultivating virtue and that's where it connects to the title of the book merchants of virtue and how these processes were integral to the opposition which was set between a hindu identity and an untouchable identity which included both muslims and other hindus Uh, you've talked about uh, the ban on animal slaughter but perhaps we can speak more about that or these other major drives of establishing austerity and charity could you share a bit about what were some of these major drives on the part of Vijay Singh um, and uh, uh, included in the, in these drives, of course, was also the role of the Mahajans. But what were some of these major drives of austerity and chastity through which, uh, undertaken by the Rathore kingdom, through which this uh, uh, distinct separation or wedge between untouchability and a Hindu identity was further reinforced and hardened? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I still remember, you know, when I was doing this archival research, being so surprised by, you know, the very first reference in which I found somebody being uh, fined or uh, arrested for this thing called Jeev Hansya. Jeev Hansya in these records means, and it means um, violence upon a living being. And it was almost like a technical category of violation. That's all it said. So and so did Jeev Hansya and, and, and it might describe the particular act of you know, violence against a living being, and he he or she should be punished in X Y Z way. So I still remember my surprise at that. Surprise at that, and I then I remember my surprise at how my stack of you know I used to copy down references because that's what we were permitted. This stack grew bigger and bigger and bigger, and I was particularly surprised because uh, uh, you know there are others who have done research in into these uh, records, and so I was like you know. It's a strange thing. Why has it not been studied? I mean, I think the answer to that is that those researchers were asking other questions um, uh, of the archive. Uh, But on the one hand, I have so this stack on non-vegetarianism uh, where this, you know, Jeev Hansya or violence specifically means the killing. So not just some abstract category, but it means actually killing non-humans. Uh, then I we have, I found these references to uh, like an explicit ban on brewing liquor, brewing and selling liquor. Uh, so again, I was like, okay. Uh, then there was a, a third one. There were women being punished for uh, abortion. Uh, and not just women, but anyone who was deemed to have helped them have that abortion, including sort of medical practitioners of the time. Uh, they were also to be fined, punished in various ways. So this seemed to me to be a very moralizing state, you know. Um, and then when I read this uh, in, uh, you know, which groups are being singled out for punishment, that kind of became an interesting question. Who gets caught, especially for the ban on liquor and the ban on uh, killing animals, one finds that even though it is applicable to all, the people who are getting into the most trouble for this are exactly the same people who become significant in another set of, um, you know, phenomena that I saw, which was people coming to the state with petitions demanding separation, separation from people of low caste or people who are Muslims uh, or both. 
And so I saw this interesting overlap in this kind of elite caste imagination. And the people who are coming are, were usually Brahmins uh, or merchants. I mean, I would say they were all Brahmins or merchants, the ones who would come and say, I can't live next to so-and-so. Uh, I think it was a cotton carder. And cotton carders, you can even tell by their names, were Muslim in this time because it just bothers me, you know. And the state would say, fine, we can we can tell the cotton carder to either move away or to make the door to his house, you know, exit in another way so you don't have to. Uh, uh, overlap with him there are wa- wells uh, that you know the again merchants uh, come and say that you know they we will uh, sponsor the construction of a new well so that we and other you know we don't have to draw water from uh, those of lowly caste you know so you have these and, and sometimes they define who they mean as who is in and who they mean as is out so he will say uh, you know Rajput Mahajan Brahman uh, Vagere Uchijat so you know these three are like the that is Rajput that is a warrior castes uh, Brahmins or the priestly caste and Mahajans or mercantile castes are the ones who are most fully Hindu in this imagination and almost everyone else can slide into being unwelcome where you know and I sort of talk about that that kind of shifting line but the innermost core of this Hindu imagination are these three groups so um when I read the kind of moralizing, you know, anti-liquor, anti-abortion, anti-animal uh, slaughter or non-vegetarianism uh, references alongside these segregation ones, that overlap became really visible to me. And I realized that what looks like a top-down state effort with the moralizing ones is overlapping in the exact same time period, in the exact same spaces with this drive to separate. And I realized that, and the, or at least on the basis of that, I argued that this was in fact um, uh, also a coming from those outside what is immediately recognizable as the state. That That is, merchants and Brahmins are uh, pushing this. And actually, you can see in these uh, records that they are also policing themselves within their caste groups, using the mechanisms of their local caste body to get their members to align with this, what until then was a caste ethic, but now is made a kingdom-wide ethic. So I argue that all this is really an effort to normalize through law the association between elite caste status on the one hand and vegetarianism uh, on the other, uh, which was until then not normalized because a very key elite caste, that is Brahmins, and also other sort of ritual castes like Charans, which are a kind of ritual community associated with Devi or goddess worship in in Rajasthan. Uh, And also actually in many parts of India, Brahmin groups uh, ate meat. Uh, so this is, you know, there is an important mercantile history and a mercantile contribution involving state power as to how elite Hindu caste status came to be associated with vegetarianism and to which was a fusing of a narrow mercantile caste practice with that of being uh, of or, or inhabiting uh, a Hindu body. So um, I think in this, I argue that they not only remade what it means to be Hindu, as in what that term means, uh, but they also remade the regional caste order, as well as the logic underlying it, that is to add vegetarianism uh, to the, to becoming kind of a universally recognized attribute of caste purity. Uh, so that is, uh, and that becomes for communities, not just Muslims, but also Devi worshipping communities uh, and Shaiva communities whose practices entail animal slaughter, whose ritual practices did not just dietary or customary practices, that entails a serious uh, challenge as to how are they to practice their religion within this uh, polity without violating the law. 
So you've already touched on some examples, but as a reader, uh, the part of this book which was really so pleasurable to read was the intimate detail with which these legal appeals and petitions are talked about uh, in various kinds. Uh, so I was wondering if you could perhaps choose one or two examples. I know there are several in the book, but maybe choose one or two to give our listeners uh, a more intimate sense of how did this process work of the kinds of appeals that would come or petitions that would come from Mahajans or others and how the state would act on it. Maybe take a couple of examples and walk us through how, how this happened on the ground. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I actually, I have uh, before me uh, a small, a tiny little, uh, you know, extract, which I will just read out to you. Really, it's the source itself. So this plays out in the, in you know, the July of 1788, which is a July in Rajasthan is not a fun time. Okay. It's hot. I mean, maybe if the monsoon comes, it's not that bad, but suppose the monsoon hasn't reached, it's a terrible time. So in 1788, uh, a, uh, you know, this petition is, or rather this order is dispatched to the a particular governor of the district of Pali, which is Pali is also a busy trading town in this part of um, Rajasthan. And the order says, the merchants of Pali submitted an appeal to Sri Hajur. There is drought here in the summers, the merchants said. The people get very restless. A step well called Gangabhav has been dug earlier, but it remains to be built. It will cost between one and two thousand rupees to build it. If the king permits and we receive the order from the governor, we can collect around two and a half rupees from each merchant home and build this step well. Please send a written order to the governor if you can approve of this. There is now another step well from which the 36 poon castes, that is the 36 lowly castes, draw water. We lose all our dignity uh, because of that. If Gangabhav or this new step well is built, then all the people can fill water there while Brahmins and Mahajans draw water from the old step well. Then our dignity will remain intact. And then the order from the state is take two and a half rupees from each home in this town and have the new step well completed from which other people will draw water while Brahmins and Mahajans will fill water at the old step well. And in the margin, right due to the Mahajan's petition. And this is by the order of, of the superintendent of messengers, Rupram. So this is, I mean, without having to explain, uh, precisely the kind of record that uh, I'm talking about in which the merchants are taking the lead in, in drawing new segregations uh, within their community, even in perhaps what were earlier unavoidable places of mingling, that is water bodies. And again, in a, you know, I think in a place like Rajasthan, or maybe generally this kind of politics of water access, uh, it continues till today, you know, these kinds of this idea that water uh, must be separated. I mean, there are there are actually echoes of this in, in at many different societies with forms of extreme uh, hierarchical uh, exclusion, where water becomes a very disputed site. Uh, I could tell you another, but if you like, I can, if you, you know, uh, you sure, go ahead, go ahead. More the better. Okay. Yeah. So another one, and that one I don't have in front of me, uh, it entails a woman of the Mahajan caste who is dead. and her fa- So Mahajan is a mercantile caste. And her father comes to the state asking for justice. And in his telling, what he uh, shares with the state is that her husband uh, beat her and kicked her while she was pregnant. So um, and, and that caused her to die. And that while she was lying on the, her funeral pyre, for reasons that are not clear, uh, her husband asked a, an ascetic uh, of the Thori 
free caste okay authority is a landless vagrant caste that is listed as explicitly untouchable um in in that re- one that record that lists who was untouchable right so a member of this caste the husband hired or asked to for some reason slit open her womb i don't know obviously these are pre-modern times my speculation is that perhaps he thought that you know with her being pregnant uh, the child might still be alive i'm not sure um whatever it is he he did this and so the father said all of this was wrong uh, and uh, it seemed to be particularly in sense that this mahajan woman's body was touched by a man of thori caste and indeed in the order from the state that is precisely the kind of language how could you have a mahajan woman touched by a member of the thori caste um that is immediately um, enforced so that is i would say yet another and there are many many others and to me i mean that was i don't know if it sort of is pleasurable to read uh, but for me that was also the challenge of like methodologically of writing uh, this project and i again there are other people who work with sources like this for south asia but it's these little uh, fragments or these little glimpses into sort of diffuse processes you know how to weave them together uh, into a coherent and uh, compelling uh narrative um and often when you don't know how that case is eventually resolved because frequently all you have is a petition and something like you know do what's right or get more information and get back to us and then it never shows up again in in the archive so uh so yeah i think you know what i tried to do particularly as i felt that you know some of the things i was arguing um were were you know not just throw away claims so for me i've sort of done that thing of putting that down every single uh enunciation or elucidation of the kinds of shifts uh, that i'm talking about so these kinds of you know micro um petitions um i think are kind of important to the book uh and there are for anybody who's interested there are many many more which i hope also share with readers kind of the fabric of everyday life you know what it was like i've included names and little quotes and you know for those who are familiar with south asia or rajasthani or hindi or marwari you know just to kind of make it like what was it like to live in this world no that really just shine through as as a way to close our conversation um i wanted to pick up on a theme that you uh, talk about in the epilogue uh, which i found to be one of the key sort of themes of the book as a whole as well and one i think that would be especially of interest uh, to our audience here which is this transformation that you talk about in the epilogue uh, or kind of a supp- supplanting of a social order which is based on custom uh, to one that is based on a universal law which is aligned with firm caste distinctions a more defined hinduism and just as an aside i think it's an interesting question of translation or how you know concepts travel between different discursive universes that this whole idea of wajibi or custom of course coming from the wajib or the legal obligation in islamic law but custom i guess in the sense of that which you presume to be obligatory it's not some kind of a universal law but it just is a part of the rhythms of everyday the custom which is just what you presume to be obligatory um but could you speak about this uh, this theme of this transformation of custom to universal law and how that might be connected to which is the main theme of the epilogue the afterlives of this narrative beyond the 18th century in terms of um, the emergence of a more defined uh, mm-hmm. hinduism 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there I would say that, um, you know, for me, this is a time of uh, tension in the sense that this sort of turn to, and I th- I don't know if I'm careful, I think I try to be careful to not use the word universal. I try to use terms like kingdom-wide law. Maybe I said universally applicable, but I was sort of wanted to, you know, kind of stand a little bit at a remove from the idea of a full and completely Though that could be a tension in the work, but certainly yes, there is this idea. What like in a, in a polity, which even in these same records, one can see traces of a logic of governing in which uh, there is a lot of room for variation, right? Custom or the existing practice, and there are terms almost again a bit like technical terms uh, that I have um, you know listed in the book as well. But like what has been going on, siraste or sadamand sun. So that's like from always or do, this idea of like. Uvajibi, which uh, the historian Nandita Sahai has also talked about separately as a kind of term that designates custom. So you see those logics persisting in, in many domains, for example, disputes over economic entitlements, disputes over tax, uh, disputes over relations between employers and employees, if that's you know a term we can use for this time. But at the same time, in other domains, that is the domains, and actually that also really interested me, that in this world of custom, why is it that these this pursuit of austerity Austerity, uh, and the austerity part, in case listeners are wondering what this is about, is like a bodily austerity, you know, to kind of restrain the senses, to not indulge the senses uh, by, um, you know, uh, particularly when it comes to sexual pleasure and uh, alcohol. So we don't see that so vis-a-vis food, but uh, from other sources about mercantile lives and kind of ideals for Jain and Vaishnav merchants, we know that living simply was, uh, you know, held up uh, in mercantile communities, both Jain and Vaishnav. So it extended to things like food and clothing as well. And there were certain sanctioned spaces in which, in fact, austerity you know, could be departed from, and that could be humanitarian expenses, charity, and community festivals and feasts. So that's a little detour into austerity. But on this vegetarianism, austerity, abortion, there is no reference to custom. It is suddenly that this simply needs to be done because it needs to be done. No no justification is given. So it is left for, for me, the historian or other historians, to think about, well, what could what is what is going on so there clearly the implication is to bring the polity in line with the ethical commitments of the king but i think uh, you know as i was also saying earlier that it's not merely the king right it is other people in this kingdom who want this the world around them to be this way so in that transition from this kind of you know this kind of moment in which we see this imagination that it's not custom but you know doing what's right or virtue uh, that needs to be elevated and something justifies that move away from custom. I think in this moment is a time of tension. And in state records, we see kind of the heavy hand of the state. But I'm willing to say that there is a world outside these records in which there perhaps there was a limit to the reach of the state in the 18th century. Uh, and here, therefore, I feel that a real kind of um, you know shift happens with the coming of colonial modernity, where these groups now develop a new kind of power and platform that they could not have had in a pre-colonial setting. And that is where that transition from customary to universal 
can have a lot more fruition than was possible in the 18th century. And I also argue, and I try to trace, in fact, there's been a lot of research on the role that, again, mercantile communities and particularly merchants from Marwar had a role in shaping the 19th and 20th idea of what it means to be Hindu and also what it means to be a Hindu nation uh, uh, or even what it means to be a nation in which the Hindu part is a little bit uh, not uh, not explicitly stated. So for me, it is more a genealogical connection that you know uh, plays out in the 19th in the colonial era from the 19th century onwards. But the kind of building blocks for that, or some of the resources for that, and some of the important experience in kind of collective organizing and participation in the state, uh, some of that experience is playing out in this polity. So to me, it's not a neat line. But it is a resource, this 18th century uh, world that I talk about. So as a final question, Divya, uh, if I might ask you, maybe a two-part final question, which is uh, how would you sort of sum up or uh, encapsulate what you see as the main sort of take-home point regarding the question of caste uh, that you would want readers to take away uh, from uh, this book? Uh, And sort of the second part of the question is how would you describe the importance of this uh, narrative that you tell in this book to the present moment when it comes to questions of caste, when it comes to questions of interreligious relations, uh, the kind of, you know, uh, majoritarianism that we find uh, in South Asia today. So a two-part question, one about the, the intervention to do with caste and more to do with the academic debate about it. Second, more to do with the contemporary significance of this narrative. Sure. So, I mean, I would say, I think the main uh, takeaway, uh, if there is one about caste, would be that we, while there has been a lot of writing about the colonial um, construction of caste, um, uh, I feel at the same time that it's also important to pay attention to the ways in which uh, there were limits to the fluidity and the sort of mobility possible within the caste order before colonialism. So I think what my book does is, while I acknowledge that, you know, there were mobilities and there were, you know, you could move perhaps up or down the, the this caste order, there were also limits. And my focus is on the limits and not as pre-given perennial unchanging limits, but rather historically constituted and historically shifting uh, limits and that is where I, I draw on that literature about the colonial construction of caste because part of the colonial construction of caste was the idea that everything was fixed in you know 800 uh, AD you know like from in ancient Brahminical prescriptions caste was fixed and that's how it was until the coming of modernity so that is where I definitely draw on on that contribution to say that no we need to study caste as a historical phenomenon so what does the early modern period what do shifts at the local subcontinental and global scale do to this to a, to kind of this regional caste order so pre-colonial caste and it, the kind of limits of fluidity but historicized is i would say my uh, main takeaway vis-a-vis caste and the other is that i think some of the work on pre-colonial caste tends to take away from it it's a kind of a more ritual uh, component so the concern with touch uh, and untouchability, I think, uh, is often uh, not visible in studies that emphasize much more things like your proximity to political power or your economic uh, kind of, um, you know, resources. Uh, whereas I felt that while, of course, those are important uh, and those are constitutional, uh, you know, when it comes to caste, but 
untouchability, that is who to touch and who not to touch, is uh, an important element in how caste was practiced and how it was enforced, administered, even at the legal and political uh, level. And that is something I want uh, readers to, uh, to, to, to take away. In terms of the present, I would just say that, you know, I started researching this book uh, in 2011. And I remember my, I mean, some of it are just the parallels, which are, I guess, more than parallels, which is this campaign against uh, uh, animal slaughter, It has eerie, eerie parallels with the present moment uh, since 2014 in uh, South Asia, or rather in India, where, again, we see the deployment or the use of state power to deem certain spaces or certain days as uh, being days on which there should be no animal slaughter or certain spaces in which there should be no animal slaughter. So some of this history actually was already seen, for example, in Gujarat prior to 2014, but at the All India level, it began to be seen after 2014. So I remember that when I found this in 2011, I was in my archives like, wow, what a weird time, man, what a weird time, you know? And here we are when it's happening again. And so I wouldn't stop at parallels. That is where I think the kind of lineage of mercantile, uh, you know, shaping of the Indian nation that I gesture to in the epilogue becomes important, where I think the influence of this version of Jain ethos on the imagination of the Hindu nation, uh, I think, uh, you know, some of the roots of that perhaps can be seen in this 18th century polity, uh, again, without drawing a neat and simple line, I think something that we see today has deep roots in that uh, early modern period. Uh, And I think, uh, you know, I think the book helps us unpack those deep bonds between state and mercantile activity, Hindu, uh, sorry, Vaishnava Jain activity. So that's one. And the second I would say uh, uh, is... Again, I think the the deep roots of, you know, the imagination of the untouchable uh, and the fact that it does not, it is not within some imagined kind of supra umbrella Hindu community. That Hindu was an exclusive identity before modernity. It is with the coming of colonial modernity that Hindu becomes this kind of um, umbrella group in which you want to, in fact, uh, take in groups that were earlier considered outside. So the line then shifts to the Muslim. But I, I would say that the meaning of Hindu uh, is uh, was in fact upper caste before before modernity, and that it is only with the coming of colonialism that we now have the so-called uh, Hindu untouchable, and um, and I think that fault line remains very alive in modern uh, Hinduism, where there is an effort to include the untouchables for electoral purposes, but there is a deep discomfort uh, among uh, caste elites with actually including the untouchable in their social world. So um, those would be my two interventions. So as our conversation is drawing to a close, uh, Divya, uh, would you want to share a bit with our listeners about what's your uh, next uh, project that you might be working on? Oh, thank you. Um, yeah, so my next project, I'm interested in uh, exploring the domain of the, I, I don't know, I, I'm calling it the popular occult, um, which is, uh, you know, there has been a lot of work on, uh, you know, the uh, un, the occult sciences in uh, the Islamicate early modern world, um, usually looking at courtly or elite textual sort of expert, um, you know, uh, 
uh, writings uh, or activities. And uh, there has separately been a lot of work on Tantra. But again, the, a lot of the source materials are Sanskrit uh, texts composed by um, technical experts. But in again, these kind of state sources, um, I, in that kind of state society interface, I found a deep discomfort with uh, the occult uh, or certain kinds of occult. Uh, and that began to interest me. And, and, and it took on a particularly gendered uh, trajectory. Uh, and I found, you know, uh, these figures which are best translated as witches, um, you know, facing persecution in uh, this 18th century world. And, and it is kind of this kind of, you could say, a gendered history of the popular occult and its interface with state power uh, in the transition from pre-colonial to colonial. So I'm taking my research into the 19th century in Western India, where I'm extending this into Udaipur and possibly parts of Central India, uh, is where my next research is headed. Merchants of Virtue, Hindus, Muslims and Untouchables in 18th Century South Asia by Professor Divya Charyan, published by the University of California Press in their South Asia Across the Discipline series in 2022. Uh, thank you so much, Divya, for this wonderful conversation and for this incredible uh, book that I'm sure will spark many debates across different fields. And thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much, Irali. So this was my conversation with Professor Devya Cherian about her outstanding and exemplary new book, Merchants of Virtue. I hope you enjoyed this episode of your favorite podcast, New Books in Islamic Studies, that is NBIS, published online through the New Books Network, NBN. And I hope you will also join us next time for another fresh episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. Until then, this is your host, Sher Ali Tareen, signing off. Take care, stay well, and keep listening to new books in Islamic studies.